just joining us today. We've been on almost a year-long journey walking through the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And we are coming to the final few chapters of the recording of what the Holy Spirit has done in the church to the world since Jesus um, died on a cross and rose again and left his Holy Spirit for us. So this is going to be the second part of the message that we started last week called Paul, the Apostle Paul, talking about him as a man and his mission and his message. Um, Again, we have walked through... just a huge timeline of events, and they are really wrapping up now as we see the Apostle Paul on his way to Rome. Um, In our last episode, at the end of his third missionary journey, we uh, realized that Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. You'll you'll remember that that the Jews, the folks that um, were the tradition holders of the Jewish faith, did not did not take kindly to Paul because he was offering a gospel. He was offering a good news. It was contrary to what they had put their trust in. Um, He was talking about the Jewish Messiah. And so many people and so many Jews did believe at this time. We don't want to get the impression that the Son of Jesus was only received as the Messiah by a few. He was actually received by either half, possibly a majority, a large percentage of the Jewish people. It was really the leaders that took issue with Paul's message because it underdid their traditions, it underdid their role, it undercut their influence in society. So, these, so the Jewish leaders travel all over the place fighting Paul, trying to arrest him, and they finally catch him in Jerusalem. So Paul is then taken to Caesarea because he's not in the Jewish hands, he's in the Roman hands, and he stands trial before Felix. We went into this last week, that Paul spends two years talking to the Roman ruler Felix in Caesarea about faith in Christ, about righteousness, and the final judgment to come. Light conversation over tea, I'm sure, talking about this for two years. And we see at the end of this that Felix is alarmed, but not persuaded, as far as we know. He gets recalled, and then a new governor, Festus, comes in. And so this is where our story ended, and we will pick up the story right here um, today. We talked last week about Paul the man, how he was uniquely prepared as a Jewish, Greek-speaking Roman to, um, to, to take the gospel, to take this good news to Rome. And we saw how his tarnished past and his, his, and his basically his sinful past, prepared him to love the gospel deeply. He was uniquely prepared um, to be a messenger of the good news about this Savior, Jesus. He had been a self-righteous Pharisee, but he had also been a murderer because he persecuted the church. But yet this prepares him to speak specifically to Felix and his Jewish wife, Drusilla. Felix had also been ruthless and had murdered people in the process of trying to bring justice. And then Drusilla was a Jew and she knew the law and was convicted about her own sin. So Paul was perfectly created and, and crafted to speak the gospel to this couple. And then we talked about Paul's mission. How on the surface he's being sent all over the Mediterranean, it seems like, to defend himself before the Roman officials. That's what it looks like on the outside, but really what God is doing is he's sending Paul to testify about Jesus. He's sending Paul not to testify about himself and his own, his, his own innocence, but really to talk about Jesus, this man who lived, died, and rose again. 
And we see that the mission takes Paul to Rome, which means that, means that just as Matt was saying, is that this message that we have, God's grace is so good. It is, it is so complete and it is so transforming that it's not just a message for, for us. It is a message for the entire world. It's that good and it's that big. And so God's got to get his, his, his man to Rome. And, so, and then we ended last week talking about the message where Paul very personally and very simply explains the gospel. He doesn't answer complex questions. He simply walks through these very basic concepts that, that anybody who could read a Bible and knows who Jesus is could explain. So this week we're going to continue to look at Paul's message. And, and specifically, here are my three big points. Write these down and see if you can follow me. We're going to look at how Paul's message changes We're going to look at who Paul's message creates. And then we're going to look at what Paul's message contains. Hopefully my thoughts will revolve around these three big ideas. How the message changes us, who the message creates, and what the message contains. So anyway, we start today in chapter 25 of the book of Acts. Where we see Festus threatens to offer Paul up to the Jews to try him in Jerusalem as a peace offering. See, Paul's supposed to be tried there in Caesarea, but, but, but Festus, wanting to, do a Jews a fa- wanting to do the Jews a favor, threatens to try him in Jerusalem, where Paul knows he will not get a fair trial. So he exercises his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. So Festus has no other choice now but to send him to Rome. However, he has no idea how to explain what Paul has done wrong. He doesn't understand the Jewish faith. He doesn't, he doesn't get the gospel yet. So he does have no idea what, what, what he's done wrong. So he looks to this Jewish king, Agrippa. Now, Agrippa was basically the Jewish ruler over the same area that Festus was. And so in those parts, there was a Jewish, there, there was a Jewish ruler and a Roman ruler to help keep peace in this part of the Roman Empire. And so, so Festus calls upon King Agrippa to help explain what on earth do I tell Rome about this guy and why I'm sending him there and what he's done wrong? So, chapter 25 opens up like this. Or this is toward the end. And this, this is where we are in the story. It says, so then Agrippa asks to hear Paul himself. Okay, so Agrippa now wants to hear about this man who, who certainly caused a big, a big row. Agrippa wants to hear his, his message for himself. It says, so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And here he is to do what he's done several times before, is to defend himself and to testify about Jesus. Now, just to get the scene here, this is like Paul walks into a meeting of like Style Weekly's 2011 power list. I don't know if you saw this, but Style just released their top 50 most powerful, influential people in Richmond. And so this is, Paul is not walking into a group like this. He's walking into a group of like Governor Robert McDonald, Dwight C. Jones, the mayor, Thomas Farrell, the CEO of Dominion, Michael Frazier, CEO of Genworth, CEO of Midwest Vaco. We have the president of VCU, president of U of R, and the top three executives at the Martin Agency. That's who's assembled here to hear Paul. Does that help you get a picture of who he's before? It's not, it's not like me and you. It's, it's, it's these people of... I didn't mean that. I'm just being honest. Um, 
I mean, these are the people that have the most influence. At least what Style Weekly would say. Chapter 26 opens up like this. This is how Paul begins. He says, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made this defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, Paul is saying this. He's asking for him to be patient because he usually doesn't get to finish his speeches, okay? I mean, he gets interrupted and stoned or people love it. So he doesn't usually get to finish. So he's asking for patience. He says, my manner of life, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. Now he's saying this because he's, he wants... He wants his audience to know that, that he is not crazy and that the Jewish, pe- and the, the Jewish people around him know that, that he was one of the champions of the Jewish tradition, one of the champions of the Jewish faith. That he didn't enter in this in a casual or crazy way. He, he is a genuine Hebrew of Hebrews. Verse 6, it says, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any one of you that God raises the dead? Paul is saying that I am standing here simply because I believe in the very hope that all the Jewish people believe. He's simply saying it is the hope of the resurrection that the Jews have always been looking for, that they've waited for day and night. It's why they worship. It's why they've sacrificed. It's why they have done everything they've done for the ultimate hope that the Messiah would bring. And that is to be with God through the resurrection of the dead. So he's literally saying that I am following in the tradition and the hope of the Jewish nation. And he goes further, says verse 9, says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now, Take a moment. He, he's saying this because he's saying, listen, I can understand your opposition to this way, to this Jesus. I understand it. I can relate to it. I was the chief opposer to this. But, you know, I also think he's saying this in a very personal way. He has never forgotten. He's never forgotten his sin. Ever. His, his sin has not left him. Look at 1 Corinthians. It'll pop up here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He wrote this five years before this moment. And this is what he said. He's he's talking about what Jesus did after he rose from the dead. And he says this. He says, Then Jesus appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, 
as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Isn't this where we all need to be? The sting of his sin is gone, but the memory remains. The memory remains so that he will not continue in his own strength, which he was so good at doing, but he would continue in the grace of God. See, the gospel-centered person, which is what we hope to be, is not someone who suppresses sin and tries to forget sin. See, the gospel actually allows us to be honest about our sin and our failings and deal with them at their core. So we're never running from our sin. We're never denying our sin. We're, we're, we're owning our sin and confessing our sin and being freed from it. We're dealing with it at its deepest level. Don't try to forget it. You can't. And don't think that you're not, that you're not living and walking in God's forgiveness if you keep remembering your sin. He's going to remind you what you were like before you met him. He's going to remind you graciously what it was like to be dead in your sins. Let the memory of your sin remain, but, let, but know that the sting is taken by Jesus himself. Paul gets that. And so when Satan tempts us to despair, like the hymn says, and tells of all the guilt within, onward we'll look and see him there. See Jesus who made an end to all our sin. He, Paul is never going to forget this. But it's making him love the gospel deeply. All right, verse 12. This is where he really gets into his story. He says, In connection to all of this, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and all those who journeyed with me. And when he, and when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand to your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now verse 18, and this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today is this verse 18. I'm sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified in me. One thing I just want to note before we dig into this message is look at verse 16. It says, I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me. Very simply, Paul is being commissioned and sent to simply tell others what has happened to him. To testify about Jesus, who he was, his life, his death, his resurrection, and what his experience was. That is what he's being commissioned to do. He's not being commissioned to answer everyone's questions, to figure out a hundred ways to to prove Christianity. He is being sent to talk about what's happened to him and to talk about the gospel that he's so believed and now so loves. Now let's look at how the message changes us. So 
This is the plan. Paul is going to go speak to those he is being sent to. And this is what's going to happen as Paul speaks about this Jesus that he knows. He says, I am sending you to open their eyes. Now know this. This does not mean that our eyes are simply closed. It means that we are unable to see. Unable. We are blind. It's not as if, it's not as if we could open our eyes, but if we wanted to, we are unable. Remember last week I said how biased we were against the idea of God, how, how naturally biased we are against Jesus because of the implications that it has for us. The implications that believing in a God, that there is a God that exists, that there is an ultimate reality, that, that we do not live alone by ourselves, that there is ultimately someone before, before whom we're living and someone to whom we are accountable to. That's such an intimidating message because it challenges who we are and what we want to do. And most of our philosophies are built around justifying the life that we really want to live anyway. So we have a bias against knowing God and a bias against this gospel. So we were, we're so biased to that, we can't let go of that. And so we're unable to see who God is. And so we remain in darkness because we're blind. And this is what he says next. He says, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. See, this means that while people may know about God, people may know about this person, Jesus, but yet can still be ignorant of him can still be ignorant. See, darkness causes us not to be able to see what is evidently and really around us. If you walk into a dark room, there's no light. You know there's furniture in that room, but you can't see it. That's why in the middle of the night, you're walking around and you, you kick something and you scream and cuss and, because there's furniture in there that you cannot see. I can't tell you how many times I jump out of bed and walk across a room and just fall over thinking I'm going to have to go to the hospital for a broken toe. But it's, it's just like there's stuff in the room, but it's dark and we cannot see it. This is what the reality of Jesus is to us. Jesus is real. God is evident. He is all around us. He is in everything we see in creation. He is in so many things and so many people and so many words to us, but yet it doesn't matter. We can't see. It's dark to us. So what does this mean? More specifically, he then says, I love this, because then he explains really what's going on in the fact that we have to turn from darkness to light. He says, we, we are then turning from the power of Satan to God. Now, on the surface, it looks like we would simply be able to open up our eyes and see who Jesus is and see the reality of God. But there's something much more deeper at work there. See, we, we are actually being, the darkness comes to us because we're in the control of someone stronger than we are. And this is the reality. This is how we're born. This is, this is the reality that we're in. Now, to really understand what's going on here, we have to leave Acts for just a minute and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul explains in more deep... Actually, just, he simply goes into detail about what he means about turning from darkness to light and the power of Satan to God. So if, if you'll go with me there... This will really answer some questions. First of all, one, who is keeping us from seeing and who is it that we cannot see? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. It'll pop up here. Paul is explaining, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, 
The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for your sake. Here's the kicker, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Now, hang with me. I need to walk through some of these sentences and it'll really open up for us what, what is happening in turning from the power of Satan to God, from darkness to light. It says the gospel is veiled. That means it's unclear. It means that it, it's not understood. It's not perceived by those whose sin still remains. Our consciences are weighed down and we will remain separate from God and under his wrath without believing the gospel. That's why he says it is veiled to those who are perishing. It says in their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds. Now, Satan is more powerful the, the, the God of this world. That's why Satan's called the God of this world. It's this force, this power. He has power that is stronger than us. And I know that, that is gonna, that's going to upset some people that think that it's our job to fight the devil. And that somehow we're supposed to work all this power up in us and overcome evil. That's not our job. And we'll see why here in just a second. It's the consequences of sin that we are dead in our transgressions and unable to see, unable to believe, and unable to make the riches of Christ our own. We may or may not know about God. We may or may not know about Jesus, but the reality of having our, our eyes blinded and our minds blinded is that we'll hear about Jesus, but he's simply uninteresting. It's, it's simply, he's simply unnecessary. We'll hear about Jesus, but it's, he's not really captivating. We'll hear about this story about the man in the Bible. But when we hear about it, it's almost like, that's nice. There's no desire. There's no interest. There's, he's not compelling. That's what it means to have your minds blinded. You may hear about him. You may know him. But he's not fascinating to you. He's absolutely unnecessary and altogether meaningless. So, but the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Here's what's helpful for us. It's in the events, it's in the preaching of the gospel that we see Jesus as most glorious. See, the reason why we don't cherish who God is and who Jesus is for our sake is because we don't understand how the facts and the events and the word of the good news about Jesus, we don't understand what that means for us. We don't have capacity to understand its value. And that's what we're like. But then it says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, it says here that even though this is the case, that that people are held in darkness and their minds are blinded against seeing who God is and who Jesus is, yet they still talk about him. Why is that? Is it because we think we can convince people? Think that through our, through our winsome logic and through our arguments and through the way we communicate and through our passion, you know, that we can convince people to believe in this Jesus that they have no interest in, 
No. No. And if you're here today and, and you've been accosted and overwhelmed by a zealous Christian, I want to take a moment to just apologize that sometimes we get really into this. And you'll see at the end kind of why we really get into this. But sometimes we get so into it that we actually think that we can convince you. And we get arrogant. And we get argumentative. And we get difficult. And we get no fun to be with. And I just want to acknowledge that and say, I'm sorry. I apologize for everyone in this room and everyone that's ever done that to you. Just please forgive us. Have mercy. We've, we've seen something. We're trying to communicate it. And so... Be patient with us. We're trying to understand the thing we're supposed to understand. So, all right. Hope that helps. Um, no, our hope doesn't lie in our ability to, commun- to communicate or to convince. It's the next verse. It says, We proclaim. Why? Because God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us, the, to give us light. For the light shines. Sorry. It says, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts. Here's the thing. The one who decides our case, the one who opens up our eyes, is God himself. Now, here's the picture that Paul has in his mind as he's talking about this. You go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. simply says this. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Regardless of what you think about how creation developed and how all the animals came to be and all the different species and all the different ways there are to think about the creation events, what we know for sure is that it didn't start from nothing. And so God spoke. God spoke. And darkness and void and formlessness obeyed. It says light came out of darkness. The darkness didn't produce it. The darkness didn't want it. God spoke. And light simply happened. And that's the way it happens for us. Formless, dark, void. You ever felt like that? You remember? Do you remember that feeling? Do you remember what it's like to wake up and not know where you're headed, what's going on, or what your life is about? you remember feeling void? you remember feeling empty? Did you ever wake up and go, I have nothing to live for today? Or do you ever go to bed at night and be like, I, can't, I do not know what just happened with my day, but it meant nothing. It means nothing. It is void and empty. It's into that heart that God says, let there be light. It says that he has shown in our hearts. What's Paul saying here? Why is he going into this? He's, because his conversion, his moment was so brilliant. The light was so bright. He didn't just hear a voice. He saw a light from heaven. Jesus appeared to him, knocked him off his horse and everyone around him. But why is he talking about it like this in 1 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians, sorry. He's saying, we don't need a light from heaven, guys. He says, Paul saw one and he said we didn't need it. 
He said, where's the light going to shine? Is it going to shine in your car as you're walking down the street? Are you going to see a light shiny to you, brighter than the midday sun? I know some of you are thinking, boy, if Jesus would just show up to me like that, it would solve all my problems. It would change all my doubts. It would inspire me and encourage me and everything would make sense. Paul's saying, you have something just like that. The light shining in your hearts. Think about it. God changes us in an instant. He changes us in an instant. Think about Augustine, the church father, who, who was literally struggling and wrestling with his sins. I love this story. If you haven't read it, go find it on the internet or something. St. Augustine, he is, his soul is being tormented. He wants to choose to serve the Lord. He wants to trust in God. But he knows that to trust in God through Jesus, that he's going to have to stop trusting in everything else that he has, his mistress, his money, his education, his power, his position. He's going to have to quit trusting in all of that. And he's wrestling in a garden. And he feels the conviction of God. And he's crying. He cannot serve the Lord. He cannot reach out with faith because he knows that he's got to let go of the things that his life has consisted of. And he cannot do it. Sorry, didn't mean to get all excited, but this is, this is fun. Um, he's in the garden, and he hears, literally, there is in this garden, and like the next door, like the next yard over, over the fence, he hears a kid singing a song, saying, tole lege, tole lege. That's, that's whatever language they were speaking back then, Greek or something, or Latin, for take up and read, take up and read. He hears this kid singing a little kid song, like old MacDonald had a farm. Take up and read. He suspects that might be God speaking to him. And so then he goes back in the house and finds the book. He was reading the Bible. And he literally just, his eyes fall on the page. And he reads Romans 13, 14. It says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And he said this, No further would I read, nor needed I. For instantly at the end of this sentence, by a light as it were of serenely infused into my heart, all darkness of doubt vanished away. Do you remember John Bunyan? Not Paul Bunyan, the guy in the kid's story with the big ox, but John Bunyan, okay, wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Same situation. He was convicted of his sin, but he was wrestling with guilt. He could not find confidence in Christ to relieve him of his guilty conscience. He felt weighed down with sins and condemned by God. It says that he ran into a field one night to pray and to work this stuff out with his soul. And in the middle of it, of all of his confusion, it says this sentence. This is what he says in Grace Abounding. He says, this sentence fell upon his soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. He heard that sentence and he was immediately comforted. But then he said, wait a minute. I got to make sure that was Jesus speaking to me. So he goes home and opens up his Bible and finds 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 and says, By his doing you are in Christ Jesus who has been made unto you wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And he says in that moment his chains fell off, his heart was free. By reading a verse. See, God was shining in his heart. I'll never forget for me, 21 years ago, in the back of the University of Richmond Chapel, on the left, in the pew, in the back, I was dark. I was dead to God. I 
I've been in church my whole life. I had, I had heard all the verses. I had done all the songs. I had done all the trips. I had done all the events. I was dead to God. I was dead to Him. I knew everything about Him, but I didn't know Him at all. So, I heard this verse in my head. Matthew 6.33 Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things you've been looking for will be added unto you. And it was like in a moment I was made alive. I was dead. I could not see. And then all of a sudden Jesus, this person I had known or I had thought I'd known and I had talked about became infinitely precious and real. In a moment. His light shined in my heart. I'm praying that as you hear this today, that if Jesus isn't precious to you, if He's just an idea, that God will do the same miracle for you. Let's keep going. He did all that to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So what does He cause us to see? He causes us to see the glory of God. And when we see, when the lights come on, through God's word, we, the facts and the news about Jesus become glorious. They become magnificent. When we are made to see by God's revelation how much we need him, that we are sinners to the core, that everything that we've ever done, everything we've wanted to do has been for ourselves, and that there's no way to recover from this, and that, and that we need someone who lived a perfect life that pleased God. So we see both the extent of our sinfulness and we see both the value of Christ's righteousness all in a moment. And this is what is behind Paul's statement to Agrippa when he says, I have been sent to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified in me. What happens when you're delivered from the power of Satan? and that you're delivered from darkness and now you're in light, you receive forgiveness of sins. Here's the reality. You receive the forgiveness of sins. See, just like, just like when I was accepted at the University of Richmond and I was taken off the waiting list and someone in the admissions office wrote my name down and said, we're going to allow Chris to come to the University of Richmond. Wrote my name down, put my name, put a letter in an envelope and sent it to me. And four days later, I get this letter and realize that I've been accepted to the University of Richmond and now I get to go and live my dreams. When was I accepted? Was it when I received the letter? Or was it when the admissions officer wrote my name on a different list? It was when the admissions officer wrote my name. I just experienced it when I got the letter. This is what's happening here, folks. 2,000 years ago, our sins were forgiven. 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross, he took our sins upon us, not just potentially, not just in general. He took those that believe in Christ, he took their sins on himself. And they're paid for all the penalty that they deserved. And in that moment, he suffered all the hell and all the condemnation and all the things to make that, that, that sin deserved. He suffered it, not just in general, but yours. Right there in that time on the cross. And then he rose again to prove that all his suffering actually matched and met all the righteous requirements of God and that now sin has been removed and he was set free from the grave. 
That's how we know that we've been set free from our sins. But it's only when we see it, it's only when Jesus becomes precious to us, it's only in this moment of the lights coming on that we receive what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. So it's when that happens that we do receive the forgiveness of sins. It was accomplished, but now it's ours. It's just like this hymn by Charles Wesley. It says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I awoke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, I went forth, I followed thee. Like we sang this morning, and oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. It says, look unto him, you nations. Own your God, you fallen race. Look and be saved through faith alone. Be justified by grace. That's how the message changes us. Now, let's look at who the message creates. The message creates a people that's been, that have been rescued and belong to God. He says that those that have, had their, that, that have received the forgiveness of sins, they also receive a place among those who are sanctified in me. We receive a place among those who are being sanctified. When we were transferred from darkness to light, this is not simply a reformation of our behavior. It's not that your deeds were dark and wrong, and now your deeds are light, and now your deeds are good. And so this process is just turning you from a really, really bad person to a really, really good person. That's, that's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying that you receive a place among those who are separated unto God. That means that there's a fundamental change in our identity. It means that we used to be slaves of sin, like Romans 6.22 will say, we used to be slaves of sin. We had no other choice but to do what our desires dictated was best for us in the moment. We were slaves to sin. But then, now we are set free. But not free in the sense that we understand freedom. It says, once, but now that you have been set free from sin, you have now become slaves of God. Romans 6.22 says, and the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. See, we are not these undrafted free agents in the NFL looking for a team, okay? We are either a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. We have been delivered. We have been rescued. Not just helped, not just encouraged, but we've been rescued by God and it changes us at our fundamental being. It's who we are. And this is the progression. We see what God has done for us in Christ. It is communicated to our souls through the words about Jesus and through the light given by the Holy Spirit. And then our identity changes. And then we get new behavior. And only then. Because so many of us are going to think and I know this is my default mode and I'm pretty sure it's yours that when we want to reform, when we want to change, when we want to become right with God, we start thinking about what do I have to do? What do I need to do? We think about Christianity, we think about the church as simply a list of things to do. We think about all of this as somehow making me a good person so God will love me and I'll have, and I'll have more peace and joy because I'm a good person. 
and we try to reform our ways that way, but that is not what happens. We've been given an absolutely new identity. It's not about what we do for God. It's always about what, we, what He has done for us. That's always where we need to turn, though everything in us would turn the other way. Look at verse 19 back in Acts chapter 26. Therefore, this is Paul's new behavior. This was his response to being set free from sin and enslaved to God. He says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. Here it is. Performing deeds in keeping with repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. It's so interesting. Here, Paul says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He was not disobedient to his knowledge and his sight of the glorious and risen Christ. It doesn't say, I wasn't, I I made sure that I was obedient to do what Jesus told me to do. I made sure that I was obedient to the law. I made sure I was obedient to God's commands. He says none of that. He says, no, I made sure that I was obedient to the risen and glorified Jesus. See the difference? He was responding to the power and the glory of God. He had seen someone risen from the dead, and he was compelled and motivated by the reality that life will continue forever and that no anybody could kill him, though anybody could come against him, it would never matter because his sins had been taken away and he was going to live with God just like Jesus did forever. He knew that in the core of his being and so he wasn't disobedient to that freedom to do all that God had wanted him to do. He wasn't trying to obey the law more or be obedient in the sense of doing these things. No, I responded to who God was. So there's a big difference between knowing God and actually seeing Him like this. Huge difference. It's just like there's a difference between knowing that a peach is sweet. Like I was in my kitchen yesterday or a couple of days ago and Rebecca had brought home one of these awesome, crazy huge peaches from Trader Joe's, right? And I'd been working. I was hot, sweaty. Oh my gosh. I looked at that thing. I was like, this is going to be awesome. I didn't even wash it. I didn't even take the sticker off. I mean, you can do that and not die. It's okay. Um, I bit in that thing and juice went everywhere. I mean, I I literally had to take a shower. I mean, juice went everywhere down my chin. Sorry, down my chin. Down my chin. Everywhere. It's like that for us. There's a lot of us. Whether, whether we've been in this one minute or not in it at all, or whether we've been at 20, 21 years, there are times where we may know who God is, but not see Him. Doesn't matter where you are today. The real question is not that you know stuff about God, but do you see Him? And being in this place where we know who God is, but yet we can't see Jesus as precious to us. This is a very difficult place to be. How do we know we're in that place? Does life feel more like duty than delight? Does guilt define you more than joy? When you think about your job and your vocation, is it just a job? 
Or is there a sense of purpose and calling in what you do every day? Are your relationships about you or are they about others? We know that we are simply knowing who God is and not seeing Jesus as precious when our future is unsure instead of our future being hopeful. When we see people and situations as threats instead of opportunities. So we see all those things about our hearts and our souls and what do we do? We try to fix it. Where we're falling, we try harder. If you feel guilty for failing as a dad or as a husband, I know what you do because you do what I do. I go read books. I go to conferences. I find strategies. I carve out time to be a better dad, to be a better husband. If my future's unsure, what do I do? I work harder I, to get job security. I go save money. I do all the stuff that I need to do to make my future secure. If I'm stuck in a job with no purchase, with no purchase, with no purpose, I get a new job. If my relationships are failing, I try to impress. And if everything feels like lifeless duty, I gut through it, hoping it'll change and hoping people will acknowledge my efforts and think well of me. Yet none of these fixes work. None of them do. What worked for Paul? He saw Jesus in his glory, and that's all it ever took. Let's look at what the message contains. How does Paul hope to see this happen? It says that he declares. He declares. To see eyes opened, to see people turn from darkness to light, to see people turn from the power of Satan to God, he simply declares the words about Jesus. Look at verse 22. He says, To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would, but saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Verse 23, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. This is what he does. He declares everywhere that just as everyone has foretold, Moses and the prophets, which is the sum of the Old Testament scriptures, he's saying that they have foretold that there isn't going to be a Messiah, and Jesus is that Messiah. He is the Savior of the world, and he proved it by dying on a cross the way that, the way that it was foretold and rising again from the dead. This is what he proclaims. It's the words about Jesus, his perfect life and his perfect death crucified, dead, and buried. This message, he knows, is a stumbling block to Jews who are hoping for an earthly king and folly to the rest of us who don't know God. It's folly. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, this is Paul's confidence. His confidence is in the power of God. His confidence is in the resurrected Jesus. And at this point, Festus interrupts him. It says, Paul, your great learning has driven you insane. And Paul says, no, I'm being very rational. Most excellent Felix, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. Jesus' death and resurrection and the church alive, none of this has been done in a corner. 
Festus. And in effect, he's saying, you may think my behavior is insane, but it is the only rational response to seeing a man rise from the dead. I'm living my life, not afraid of you, not afraid of anyone else, being shipwrecked. And you will see for the rest of the story, being shipwrecked, being tossed, being persecuted, being chased, being tormented, both inside and without. Always giving himself, pouring himself out for the sake of the churches. Why is he doing this? Because he has seen a man rise from the dead. Would people look at us the way we live, the way we shop, the way we eat, the way we live, the way we drive, the places we go, our relationships, what we're about, our jobs, how we work, why we work, what we do on the weekends? Would people look at our lives and go, wow, you've seen someone rise from the dead? I don't know. I think they might look at me and go, you haven't seen someone rise from the dead. Come on. No. Here's the reality. Paul is there in front of all this crowd. The who's who, the most powerful people in the region. Agrippa says to him after this message, feeling the tug on his own soul. He says, are you trying to convince me to be a Christian, Paul? And listen to what Paul says. He says, I would to God that not only you, but also all those who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. He looks at all the pomp, all the power, all the influence, all the money, and all the things that those people could do, and he said, I will take none of it. That doesn't influence me in one bit. As a matter of fact, I want you to be like me. It is better to be a prisoner and to know this crucified Lord and to know that your sins are forgiven and to know that you will live life forever with him. It is better to know Jesus than it is to know all the stuff that you know, to have all the money that you have. He says, I am sitting here in chains, but I am free. You are free as anyone could ever be free, but you might still be in the power of Satan and in darkness. Guys, do we we have a sense of God's power, of his goodness, of Jesus' preciousness so strong that we could look at all of that and say, I'd rather have Jesus. Let me pray for us. And then we'll take a few minutes to reflect on what we've heard. God, we need your help. God, I ask that your spirit now would speak to us as you've been speaking. God, that light would come on. That your light would fill our darkness. God, that just as your spirit hovered over the earth when it was formless and void and dark, your spirit would hover over us now, God, and say, let there be light. Amen.